Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki, back once again with John Mitchell this week after a week off. This week, we're going to be talking about the UConn situation and the Huskies' impending move to the Big East and what that might mean for their future football prospects. And then we're going to talk a bit about our top five coaches of all time. Uh, Just a fun little topic leading up to the 150th season of college football. Um, A little anniversary topic to get us heated up. Um, Before we dive in, though, John, how are you doing? It's uh, great to have you back with us again this week after a week away. Yeah, I've been doing well. Shout out to Connor for kind of holding it down for me last week. So I really appreciate that. Uh, getting moved into a new place and everything, as you know, so not having internet and stuff last week was kind of a challenge, so I'm excited to be back, excited to get back in gear this week. Yeah, we're excited to have you back. Um, so, you know, the first big topic we wanted to talk about this week was the Yukon situation. So Connecticut is looking at realigning in conference terms from the American Athletic Conference to the Big East. Um, mainly for their basketball programs, which are, you know, the bread and butter of Connecticut's sporting life. It really puts them back in alignment with some of their traditional rivals from the original Big East that started back in 1979, and that split when football, you know, the non-football schools all broke off and were able to successfully keep the Big East name. It's a it's a really interesting situation, though, because obviously the Big East doesn't have football anymore. So what will this mean for UConn's football team? I wrote about it recently in this week's Sunday Morning Quarterback a bit, just looking at some of the possibilities for UConn. And I just kind of wanted to riff with you a bit this week, John, and just see what you're thinking might be the best possibility for the Huskies moving forward if, you know, this actually does go forward and they leave the American. To me, the the thing that this signals, and I don't know, they're probably UConn's probably too proud at the moment as a university to do this, but it seems to me like it would be the perfect opportunity for UConn to transition back down to the FCS for football with as bad as things have been for them in the last, you know, five years or so. They obviously experienced a good run of success during Randy Edsall's first tenure as coach, but, you know, since he's been back and even before he was uh, back, they've really, really struggled, struggled to even be competitive. And in, in the FBS ranks last year, in particular, going one and eleven with their one victory being a fifty-six to forty-nine shootout over an FCS program, you know. So I, I'm guessing they're going to stay FBS at least for the short term. They'll probably drop down to maybe an independent or maybe join one of the smaller conferences like the MAC or the Conference USA. But to me, it, it's just the perfect opportunity for them to take a step back, go down to the FCS and really start being competitive again in football, potentially, you know, it's, it's, it's the question of, are you wanting to be, are they wanting to just, are they content with being a six and six bowl eligible team? Is that really their peak that they're going for uh, and being excited for? If you go on the FCS level, there's opportunities obviously there for them to maybe even compete for national championships down at that level. 
And like you said in the lead-in, too, basketball is where it's at for UConn men's and women's basketball, both. A lot of proud tradition there, national championships, even in recent years for those programs. And that's what the move's for. It gets them back into a premier basketball conference, makes a lot of sense. And football's really just an ancillary concern at this point, right? They're not all that worried about the football program. And that's part of the reason that things are declining, too, for the football program, because they're not putting as much effort into it. So to me, to me, Zach, I think it signals that at least it's the perfect opportunity for them to kind of slide back down to the FCS ranks and just and go back to that. But I, I don't think they will. What are your kind of thoughts on that? You know, that's what I wrote about in this week's Sunday morning quarterback, just why it would be a good idea for them to move. So, uh, you know, I think we're actually on the same wavelength in that regard. I think it would really be something where, you know, they competed for national championships in the 1990s and only moved up to the 1A ranks in 2000. And so, you know, they got really lucky. They spent four years as an independent at a time when independents still had some sort of fighting chance. You know, at the at the turn of the 21st century, the landscape for independence was a lot different than it is now. And you still saw schools going that route. It, and even then, you know, it had been a decade of falling off. So... It, it was really a transition thing. And they got lucky enough to land in the Big East, you know, and they landed there on in large part because of their basketball credentials, um, sort of like we see with a Kansas in the Big 12 or whatnot. You're not keeping that school in because they have a great gridiron history. Um, you're keeping them in because they offer you chances into the NCAA tournament. And I think that's great. You know, I I think it works for UConn, and I think it worked while they were in the Big East. The the, the problem is now structurally, as a group of five school, um, you know, in the American, it's tough enough as it is. And that's the premier group of five conference at this point, looking at schools like UCF, looking at schools like Houston that have been in the New New Year's Six picture since it went to the college football playoff. And um, so, you know, even if you're struggling, even in a conference like that, where you have the best possible chance as a group of five school, it's really not worth your time, especially if football isn't your main thing. And the problem is, is being in the American Athletic Conference, being in the AAC, it really, it throws off everything for basketball as well. You're playing against schools that really never mattered to you before versus, you know, a a whole flight of schools that you have a rich history against. That's what joining up with the Big East again is all about. You know, it's what you mentioned a, a little bit earlier. And I think it makes total sense for the school from a holistic athletic department standpoint. The real question is, no, I don't, I don't think they'll drop down to the FCS when I, threw that out there this weekend, it was really, um, you know, a thought experiment of what would it look like if more schools decided to take a sober assessment of where they're at and, you know, think about what it really might mean to sort of take that step back and and follow Idaho's lead, if you will. Yeah, and I mean, 
it's got to be about revenue and stuff like that and attendance too. Like, what does it do to attendance? It'd be fascinating. I haven't looked into it with Idaho or anything, but what does it do for attendance for the drop down to FCS? Me personally, I'd rather cheer for a really good FCS school than a terrible FBS school, right? Like, I can't, UConn's games weren't very well attended last year because they were getting blown out by every quality opponent that they faced. And even the, you know, opponents who weren't as good were still beating them mostly pretty soundly. Even when UConn would take a, a brief lead, it would last very small amounts of time. So if they drop down to the FCS, you got a, a, the opportunities at least there because UConn's a big enough brand. Uh, you got to think they'll still be able to recruit pretty decent uh, and probably better than most other FCS schools just because they're UConn and have the opportunity to really be competitive at that level. And that would probably drive revenue for the school would drive, you know, up attendance, get students and stuff like that more excited because students have so many opportunities. I mean, I've never been to UConn's campus, but there's so many different things and activities that students can go do instead of going and sitting in a football stadium that, you know, especially when it's getting in the colder months or in the warmer months, it's either really hot or really cold and watching your team get just destroyed by 40 points when you could be at the bar across the street or at a house party or something like that. You'd rather do that than sit there and watch your team just get massacred time and time again. Cause there was just, there's been no hope for that program for the last several years. There's been no shining light, no beacon there or anything. Randy Edsall's doesn't have the magic he once had, obviously, to be able to do anything with this program. So I think they should slip back down. I, I'm in complete agreement there, Zach. What do you think happens now uh, for the American, though? Do you think they – should they stick with 11? Or who, who do you think maybe are the prospects out there that make the sense for the American to kind of poach? You know, that's another great question. You you look at it, – it, obviously, you'd have to look at group of five conferences. You're not going to get somebody from the Big 12. While you may pull a Big 12 coach like Dana Holgerson over to one of your schools, you're not going to poach an entire school. You know, something like that just isn't going to happen from the Power 5 leagues. And so you're looking at other group of five schools. And if you're looking at, you know, like their big push when they brought in the big sweep at that last year of being the Big East, when they brought in UCF and they, you know, they brought in Memphis and they, uh, Houston and, you know, that whole big run of schools, it, who do you look at next? Like there, there are no schools that really entice in terms of a big you know, following or in terms of a big, I, I mean, the obvious one I think is one that they tried for before in Boise State. Right. If, if you're really trying to be the American, that's your push is trying to get Boise State and maybe a couple of other top, um, you know, Mountain West teams to come over. And yeah, I mean, the American's been fighting for that seat at the table, but is that that's a lateral move for Boise State, right? Because I think there's an argument that could be made that the Mountain West is every bit the conference that the American is right now. Oh yeah, certainly, and especially if you, you're starting to lose teams and teams are losing interest in what's a less geographically continue you know contiguous project than the Mountain mm -hmm. West is. Like yes, Western states are really spread out. Trust me, I grew up there. We measured everything in hours of driving, not miles <laughs> of driving. And, 
you know, like you wouldn't even think twice about an 8, 10, 12 hour day to just go visit somebody. It's just what you do out there. And it's still very contiguous. Like all those states are together. The American Athletic Conference is this really just mishmash project of trying to brand something into existence. And it, it it's really tough for a program that, you know, like with a, a school like UConn that was a charter member of the original Big East and, you know, was willing to stick with it as a football school as it rebranded into the American, like it kind of makes sense to go back to the conference you actually helped form originally rather than, than sitting there and continuing to fight a losing battle for the American. If it's really going to, to make itself a long-term, you know, strong suit, if if it's going to make itself one of the quote unquote big six or power six, as they like to brand it, um, they need to go big. It would have to be getting, I I think you have to get Boise State. You have to convince BYU not to be independent anymore. Um, You know, because that's a school with a 60,000-seat stadium and a rabid following, however they've been doing. And when they're in a conference, they can do really well. You know, that's a program that's won a national championship. You don't want to fight against bringing a school like that in. So getting them to stop being independent and really embrace this conference project, um, getting, you know, maybe a Fresno State, getting a, um, you know, a couple of other schools, even from Conference USA, you might want to poach a couple there. Um, Yeah. And I think think Boise State's the dream, right, for the American. They'd love to get that. But is it really financially feasible for Boise State. You mentioned a great point about geographics and and the distance and everything like that. Like a a road trip for Boise State having to go all the way to central Florida, for instance. Boise State's obviously never shied away from making those treks, obviously. But when you're having to do it four or five times a season, it really starts putting a strain on – on your team, on your budget, and everything like that. And, you know, if Boise State thought that this was really a step that really put them uh, up closer to being in a Power 5 conference, or if they thought the American, their inclusion in the American would make it a Power 6, and maybe they were able to get the automatic bid to the New Year's 6 from there, then maybe that's a step they take. But I don't know if just adding Boise State really gets the American there uh, fairly or unfairly, I don't think that that would be the case. So Boise's probably better off sticking in the Mountain West and maybe hoping that down the road there's a spot at the table in the Pac-12 or the Big 12 or something like that for football when inevitably conferences expand again. So I think if you're looking at it realistically, you're going to look at smaller schools, one schools that don't really elevate the football conference that much more, but maybe – you get in somewhere that has a big TV market and maybe increases your revenue. A team that makes sense to me from that standpoint is UAB. Mm. You get UAB into the American. Not only does UAB have a football program that's really boosting recently, UAB's got a quality basketball program as well and could really help that conference in that regard as well too. And UAB's got Birmingham, obviously. Birmingham's TV markets, if you look at any college football game ever, 
at this point, regardless of where it's played or what's on on the line. Birmingham's almost always a top ten market for college football. So now there's a fair question of are those fans tuning in for UAB? Mostly not, because you know the focus in Birmingham is still Alabama, still Auburn, or still you know all the other. Uh, nationally televised games, but that was an option, I thought, just because UAB's program has been so strong in the last couple of years, you tap into the Birmingham TV market and maybe that helps. Also, what about Southern Miss? Southern Miss historically has been a pretty strong group of five program or whatever at, from historically, and they've got pretty good TV market too with a lot of clo- in a really close vicinity to a lot of different markets, whether it's, you know, the Alabama markets in Birmingham or Atlanta or wherever, really close. So Southern Miss, UAB, you're probably looking at a team like that that's more realistic to joining the American to me. Yeah, no, I, I think that's probably the, the like you said, the more realistic place where they're looking. Obviously, they have their white whale that they want to go after. And I think that's really the only thing that's going to give it long-term salvation. As much as we talk about TV markets, um, you know, we see programs like a, a Southern Miss or a UAB, or I was even thinking about just the national brand of a, a team like Appalachian State, you, you know, and the, yeah, the, the growing influence of the Carolinas in, in market terms and the fact that you have more alums circulating through there after they have their big win over over a decade ago now. Um, but, you know, you have you have these different options on the table that have certain advantages. I, I certainly agree that in real terms, if you're looking at the way that this conference built up from, you know, poaching the best conference USA teams, those are probably the schools you're going to go after. Or maybe you're going after a really good Sunbelt team, maybe even like a Georgia Southern um, might be another good option or Georgia State if you're looking to elevate a program that honestly has less history but has a great stadium in the former Turner Field. So, you know, like you have certain options there. But I I, I think, again, you know, as somebody who grew up rooting for the WAC, you know, in, you know, Wyoming when they were in the WAC and watched that conference expand to 16 teams across four time zones – you can get too big and you can get too geog- like it's not getting too big from a, a member standpoint that's the issue right. it's getting too big from a footprint standpoint and the fact that the whack ran from hawaii to texas was an issue and the fact is if you're running from southern florida all the way up to boise idaho you're going to start to have the exact same issues in right. terms of travel that you did there. And, you know, just like the whack couldn't land a, a big time TV deal that was going to make that economically feasible for its members, the American athletic conference for what it, you know, for the members it's actually bringing in is never going to have that same sort of deal. The big East was able to cobble that together because it still had the memory of Miami and Virginia tech that was guiding a lot of its deals And you had teams that stepped up in, you know, the following in terms of Louisville and even, you know, Rutgers before they moved around. And, um, you know, some of those programs really kind of came up. Also, like a West Virginia 
but they're now in the uh, Big 12. You're not going to get a team like that for your reconstituted American. It's just never going to happen. And if you can't do that, you're never going to get the TV dollars, no matter how many TV sets you have. Because like you said, somebody in Birmingham, even if they're a UAB alum, might just as well have grown up watching Alabama Crimson Tide football and care more about that than they do the, you know, the Blazers. It, right. It, you know, right or wrong, that's just what's so. And it, it, if you're not getting the revenue, it's not worth it, especially for a team like Boise State to move when, as you said, they're going to have to make a, a very long trek at least two or three times a year and a medium-sized trek if they have to go to, like, a Houston or a Memphis, even. So Sure. Yeah, I wonder if they think about Army, you know, adding that with Navy already being in the conference, trying to convince Army to go from being independent, because Army's taken such a big step over the last few years from being kind of a fledgling football program that really struggled to even compete for bowl eligibility to really being competitive to the point that they've won what, two, two years in a row they've won 10-plus games? Yeah. Um, real, I mean, nearly upset Oklahoma and Norman last year. Both of us have already discussed the possibility that they've got another really good opportunity against Michigan this year to pull that massive upset that they've really been on the cusp of getting to. So maybe they think that could be the next step for them, you know, getting into a conference that gives them at least – a better opportunity of a potential New Year's Six appearance if they can, you know, get in, win the American, and, you know, finish as the highest-ranked team from the group of five. So I don't know. I mean, maybe Army makes sense. you got the natural rival with Navy already, um, and I, I don't know if Army would be willing or not, but I, I think they could do a lot worse than pulling a team like Army in. And like we both discussed, I mean, Boise is a pipe dream. Fresno State's a pipe dream. It just doesn't make sense logistically and geographically for either of those teams to make the jump when they both could conceivably have an opportunity to join a bigger conference yeah. not too many years down the road. Exactly. And it's the exact same thing with a team like BYU as an independent, right. you know, you're going to have a lot more luck drawing somebody like army as an independent, but at the same time, army has tried the conference route before and they proudly went right back to independent status so, right. you know, just like a Notre Dame or just like BYU for, you know, what's been a, a decade now or just about a decade of independence, it, it, it's, it becomes a matter of pride when you make it as a choice. When you're a team like New Mexico State or Massachusetts or, you know, potentially UConn in the sake of, you know, let's face it, if they go to the Big East, the American is not going to keep them as a football-only school. You know, you break every other contract with them, they're not going to be likely to say, okay, we're still going to keep you as an associate member. Thanks for sticking around. Right. And, you know, the other ideas I've seen floated around in terms of the MAC and Conference USA, what incentive do those schools really have to... You know, they've seen what, you know, they see what UConn's doing to the, the AAC. They, they're they just as confident that they could do the exact same thing to them and, you know, skip town. 
So I really don't see the MAC or Conference USA saying, hey, come on as a football mem- only member either. So really, it's, right. it, it's independents are dropping down at this point for them. I, I really don't see what other feasible option is on the table that you're going to get another party to agree to. So it's really, it, it's the colonial or it's independence. Right. And I mean, you're talking about the Conference USA has already got 14 members at this point, too. Yeah. So how much bigger do they really want to expand anyway? And what what value does UConn <laughs> football at this point bring to the Conference USA? And like I said, it's not much. So yeah, I think independence is what you'll see from UConn. I think they'll go to independent and maybe we'll revisit this five to ten years down the road when they're potentially dropping down to the FCS at that point when things don't go maybe as splendidly as they had hoped from an independent route. You know, like, I think UConn and Massachusetts as a package deal going to the Colonial would just be phenomenal. It would be, you know, both of them are recent additions. They're both less than two decades into FBS life. There's not a rich history there. They have as much history at the 1AA level as they do at the top tier. There's really nothing... For fans that saying, you know, they're not coming out to the stadium for, as you said, one in 11 seasons. There was a small uptick during the, you know, the BCS year in 2010. And when they, you know, won a share of the Big East Championship in 07, you know, like those teams were good teams, but they were still eight win teams. That's the thing we need to remember is none of these teams were ever double-digit win, just absolute, you know, like, real contender teams. That UConn team that made the Fiesta Bowl that year is looked on still as the worst team ever to make the BCS by most people that talk about these sorts of things. And so I think it's really kind of foolish to say that UConn even really has had that much of a story passed in the Big East. They won two split championships in 07 and 2010. They got their one chance at a BCS Bowl the second time they split the title. Other than that, you know, it's a matter of fighting for a bowl spot in a second or third tier bowl game. You know, like, when you get down to it, is that really that much better than playing for an FCS title? And I think if more schools look at it, you know, really soberly, even schools like, you know, UMass Amherst and a UConn and, you know, schools with some clout in terms of the NCAA, you're going to see bigger negotiating value as more of these schools that have quality talent, but just don't stack up again. You know, there's there's opportunity value in going down and getting to play against more well-matched competition. Yeah, I agree. And like I said earlier, I mean, I would I would rather root for a team that was competing for a national title, even if it was at the FCS level, than, than rooting for a team who, in your best years, you're winning eight games and getting your ass kicked by Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl. Yeah, North, or North Dakota State is certainly not hurting for fans coming out to watch right. them. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's one of the, and North Dakota State's one of the most well-known programs right now in college sports, uh, at least for football. And I mean, look at the amount of NFL talent they're producing there too. Yeah, exactly. There is, 
the ability to make a name for yourself as an FCS school in a way that there wasn't even 10 years ago. And that's why I think you saw in, you know, throughout the 90s and into the 2000s, schools moving up to the FBS because they saw the gravy train of money and thought they could cash in. But unless you were in a power conference, you were never going to cash in 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 the way that makes it that valuable. So why not boost the value of the FCS championship? Because I think if you do that more, you're just going to push the system to either say, you know, you people at the top are a closed system and just call your championship what it will, but we are the NCAA championship here. You can, you, you can really turn that into a valuable commodity the more schools you get to buy into it. Yeah, so I think we're both in agreement. UConn, go to the FCS, thank us later. Moving on. <laughs> totally. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, everybody. We'll be right back to talk about the top coaches of all time, so stay tuned. Welcome back, everybody, to the Saturday Blitz podcast. This segment, we're going to be talking about our top five coaches of all time. We're looking at coaches that have been really successful, um, coaches that have had, you know, storied careers, um, not just our, you know, flash-in-the-pan sort of coaches. So I threw this topic out to John really late. Um, I'm sure he didn't have a ton of time to, you know, dive into the nuts and bolts of the stats and the numbers. So I honestly really like like that opportunity to just from the gut, you know, who are the five coaches who really just stand out to you as if you were going to carve their face in stone, these five are them? Well, ah, man. I think it starts, and maybe this is controversial, I don't know, but I think a lot of people recently have started to come around to the idea that it's probably Nick Saban as number one just because of what he's been able to do. Because you got to, I think you have to take at least some with a grain of salt what some of the coaches from, you know, the 20s and 30s and 40s were able to accomplish just because it's harder to do that in today's day and age. Because as much as we argue about college football not being inclusive and stuff, it's still tougher now with scholarship limits and and stuff like that. There's a lot more parity, I think, in college football nowadays. So the fact that what Nick Saban's been able to do at Alabama since he got out there in 2007 had the one kind of year zero where things didn't go splendidly in year one, like for most coaches trying to rebuild a program. And then since 2008, it's just been on a whole different level. Right Since 2008, they've lost more than two games in a season one time, and that was in 2010. And that's his worst year since since then. They went 10-3 and three and won the Capital One Bowl over a really quality Michigan State team resoundingly. So winning, what now, five national championships over the last 10 years? They've won literally – he's literally won half of the last 10 national championships – uh, whether from the BCS era into the early playoff era, has made every single college football playoff. So Alabama hasn't finished worse than fourth, you know, in the final standings over the playoff era so far. And that's, you know, stretching back now five years, right? So yeah. we're about to enter year six of the playoff, and they've made every single one. Uh, there's arguments to be made that maybe they weren't exactly worthy for the 2017 playoff, but then they went ahead and won the whole damn thing anyway. So I mean, it's, then it's kind of tough to make that argument. So 
I, I really think it starts with Alabama because old people are more inclined to say it's Bear Bryant because that's who they grew up with and everything. And I think that has an effect on who you think the greatest coaches of all time are, too, or the greatest players of all time. You're always going to be a little bit more biased to your era. And the older generation around here, at least, are going to say it's Bear Bryant because, you know, no one to them could ever top Bear Bryant. It's kind of like the, the Michael Jordan-LeBron James argument in professional basketball some people are never going to be convinced that Michael Jordan might not be the greatest basketball player of all time, while people who have grown up over the last 20 years might argue that it's LeBron James because that's you know who they've seen and he's been the most dominant in their era. Well, let me ask you this quickly. Since I'm giving you a five-man Rushmore and adding an extra head to right. this carving, um, do you both Saban and Bryant deserve to be up there? I think so. Honestly, okay. I really do think so. Okay. I think they're both among the the two among the five greatest coaches in the history of the sport. You've got, you know, and, and it's subjective too because you look at Bear Bryant and he's, you know, credited with six national championships, and those are all, you know, AP or what was it UPI back then national titles, which was the coaches' bowl, yeah. and those are legit claimed national titles, whether you want to say it or not, with the NCAA. But it's also fair to point out that there was a couple of those title teams for Bear Bryant that if we were playing by today's rules would not have been national championship teams because they lost their bowl games. Yep. So I believe it was 1973 they were, the AP was still giving out the national championship prior to the bowl games. So Alabama was awarded the national title in 73 go to the bowl game and lose Notre Dame who they technically split the title with that year. So yeah. it's fair to question that none of Saban's teams have ever finished the year with a loss. So that's another thing that kind of points to me. And technically, and they both, you know, have won six national titles at this point because Saban won the one with LSU and won five uh, with Alabama. So those are the two that, I mean, obviously those are the ones that come to mind for me. I don't know what you're standing on both of them. Uh, I'm sure you'll get into that. I want to hear your other three first. Okay. So... Like, like we said, this is a rough kind of draft because it's kind of difficult to really pull this out. There's been so many quality oh, yeah. coaches, and I don't want to – I'm sure I'm going to forget someone that's going to drive me crazy. But another one that early came to mind, and this is an older one, was Newt Rockney. Yeah. Um, from Notre Dame. Um, I had it pulled up a second ago. He won 88% of his games, 105 wins, 12 losses during his time at Notre Dame. Um, and, you know, who knows what else would have happened. He tragically passed away in a, in a plane crash um, in the 40s or when he was like 43 years old, I think it was. Yeah. So he dominated the sport um, back then during that time. And like I said, I think it's easier to win games back then than it is now because, you know, it's, it's tougher within this era, I believe. But it's also hard to argue with a guy who won that many games I forget what, how many national, four national championships, undefeated five times. I mean, only lost more than two games and one time in his whole career at Notre Dame. So I think he's got to be there. Uh, also, if nothing else, for his impact on the sport from the early goings, you're talking about one of the pioneers, really, of big-time college football was Newt Rodney really developing Notre Dame as the brand that they ultimately really became. So that's another one, I think. And one of the ones that I think has to be on there, and it's not even an FBS coach, is Eddie Robinson. Mm, yeah. Uh, was one of the guys that really stuck out to me. You're talking about the first coach ever to win 400 games, to, to you know, surpass Bear Bryant, 
before anyone else and got to over 400 wins at Grambling State. I believe he's number three all times on the wins list now or number two among Division One coaches. I think number one was uh, Joe Paterno, I believe, still has that at 409. So Eddie Robinson, just again, for what his impact on the game, his impact on that university, uh, they won nine of the, the black college national championships, 17 conference titles. So Eddie Robinson's got to be up there in my mind as well. Um, and then for a fifth, I kind of struggle. Uh, I think it's, I think it's tough. I, I think you've got several guys who are um, kind of in the discussion and a guy that I think, and I kind of hate to think this, but a guy that I might put up there might be Urban Meyer. Like, I know that's kind of crazy to say because he's more recent and everything, but if you look at winning percentages, Urban Meyer has the third highest winning percentage of all time in college football. Yeah. And I don't know if that's something that everybody really sees and understands. He won 85% of his games, 187 wins, 32 losses, three national titles uh, coming at two different schools. And, I mean, just look at his run of success from school to school. It's, it's super impressive regardless of his personal faults. If you're just looking at him as a football coach, I mean, going from Bowling Green, having a lot of success there, leading Utah to the Fiesta Bowl in 2004, an undefeated season, then going to Florida and winning a couple of national titles, leaving Florida, coming back a year later at Ohio State, winning a national title at Ohio State, and could have very easily had the opportunity to win another one. And you're talking about 2015 Ohio State, if you look at like S&P Plus and those kind of more analytical rankings. Ohio State was the best team in the country in 2015, lost a heartbreaker to Michigan State that really knocked them out of the potential to play in the college football playoff. They might have very well won that college football playoff in 2015. So Urban Meyer, I I kind of struggled between Urban Meyer, um, Barry Switzer from Oklahoma, I thought was another name that I kind of fought with, and then Tom Osborne from Nebraska. Those were the guys that were really in contention for that fifth spot. But if I had to go without really digging into it and doing a ton of research on it, those are probably the guys I go with. You know, I think you named a great list of five. And and one thing you immediately pointed out there, and I'm glad you did, is this is a very subjective list. There's probably a list of at least 30 or 40 names where you could throw those five into this mix and you could make a credible case for the five that you choose. So yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned Eddie Robinson. He was definitely one that was on my short list, especially because I've been thinking about historical black colleges and universities more lately. And, um, you know, another one is like John Gagliardi at St. John's in Minnesota. You know, his prowess at the NAIA level, the Division III level, um, you know, just as the longevity factor alone is just unbelievable. They're not necessarily, like you said, it's such a hard thing winnowing it down to five. Um, I think Bear Bryant, like you said, has to be on there. And I think maybe some of my issues are that I'm less inclined to lean toward more recent individuals. So I'm glad you named both Saban and Meyer. Um, even though I might not necessarily start chiseling them in stone quite yet, especially because who knows if Meyer's actually, you know, done for good, given the swirl around talk with him possibly becoming a guy at USC, Um, which still cracks me up, but I could totally see him getting into a, a flame war with Chip Kelly in the Los Angeles area. 
I'd love God, to that see, would be fantastic. I'd love to see that, if nothing else, out of it. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm less inclined to lean toward people who are still coaching, especially, or still might be coaching. Um, but, yeah, Bear Bryant definitely falls on my top five. He's a hard one to argue. Newt Rockney was another one I had on my five, so I'm glad you mentioned them both. Um, another one I was really thinking about was Fielding Yost especially those Michigan years. You know, he put in 25 years at Michigan, won six national titles there in the early 20th century. That first quarter of the 20th century, he was one of the titans of the sport. Um, You know, you could also look at individuals like Walter Camp and John Heisman in that regard. Um, But Yost and his mile-a-minute Michigan teams, or his, you know, point-a-minute Michigan teams, rather, um, they might as well have been going a mile a minute to score as much as they did. Um, They were absolutely phenomenal, and he was definitely one of those guys that revolutionized the sport. Um, You mentioned Tom Osborne. He's another name I was thinking about. Um, You know, I guess I've gone Bryant. Um, Yost, Rockney are definitely my three. I was debating Osborne. I was debating somebody like Joe Paterno, given, you know, even given the swirl around his late career and the legacy that still remains very tumultuous. Um, there's no denying the impact that he had on the sport. That said, if I had to name a top five, I'm going to go back to somebody I, I, I said would be on my cusp before and, now that you've said Robinson, I'm going to agree with you there. I think he's somebody who definitely belongs on the list. And I also think that um, the last person I would put up there is Bud Wilkinson at uh, Oklahoma. I think uh, Wilkinson and his history with that Oklahoma team, maybe I'm biased because I'm working with a colleague right now on getting some of his research published around Wilkinson. So I've been reading about him a lot lately, but just his impact, you know, the two longest, you know, winning streaks in college football history um, are accredited to his name. And so I think he's a coach that you definitely can't write off. And so he's one I would definitely put on that mountaintop. I still think Saban probably ends up on that Mount Rushmore at this point, just uh, just for what he's been able to do at Alabama for the last decade plus of Osborne's longevity. You know, Osborne won 255 games and still compiled an 83 winning percentage, 83% winning percentage, which is just insane to kind of think about as well that he won that many games. That's the most wins uh, for anyone with that high of a winning percentage by like 80, I think, is what I was looking at a minute ago. I was cheating and looking at it on my phone for a second because I was curious because I knew he had a really high one and had a lot of wins. So yeah. you got to look at that, too, with it being being able to do that for the amount of time that Tom Osborne was able to do that at Nebraska. Also fielding arguably a couple of the greatest college football teams that the world's ever seen in the 90s at Nebraska. Um, I believe that's still – is that still right, the, the last team, the three-peat? They were the national titles was that at Nebraska? No, they were ninety four, ninety five, and ninety seven because it was Florida in ninety six. Ah, close. Okay, yeah. three out of four. Yeah, three out of four. So you got three out of four now, which is obviously insanely impressive. That's 
a, a streak that's been matched in recent years by Nick Saban at Alabama winning yeah. in 09, 11, and 12. So, but even still, so I, I think Osborne's probably on there as well. I'd probably bump Urban Meyer for now and throw Osborne up there, but maybe Urban Meyer goes to USC, <laughs> dominates at Southern Cal, Southern Cal at a Pete Carroll-like level, and then it's kind of undisputable at that point that he's the guy. Yeah. No, and that's, you know, I think it's fair to consider those guys for sure. I think both Meyer and uh, Saban right now are right there in the discussion. I, I think we're fooling ourselves to say that we have to limit ourselves only to guys who have retired. Um, and it is, you know, it, it's a bias of mine to lean toward the, the past just because I, I look at history more frequently than than most people do. And I'm looking at these individuals and just, you know, what was said about those teams in the moment, I think is right. part of what we need to look at as well, because if they were just that revolutionary in the moment, um, it, it, it's really hard to discount success. Even when we think about sure. it being easier to achieve than, you know, the parity that we have these days in terms of having good teams all around the country. It's only fair when you're comparing between eras to look at how someone did in that era because it's impossible to get the same circumstances and everything when you're comparing across eras because there's so many different factors that went in to these, you know, these teams and these conferences and these games and stuff back then to what happens today. Um, you know, you've got you're fielding a team back uh, in that era and some of these eras during the 40s and stuff are worried about half of them getting drafted to go to the military or something like that too a whole different set of circumstances at that point in time too. So you can really, like you said, it's all subjective, but you have to, I think, split it up and really look at how someone did in that era. And if you're looking at a guy like Newt Rockney, you know, maybe it was easier for him to win at Notre Dame back then, but no one else won at that level. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's one of those things where, Yes, you can look at these different eras, and and even looking at wartime, some schools really get decimated by um, the hit to, to their student body getting drafted, and then other schools benefit by things like V twelve programs where enrollments for you, you know um, training, army training, navy training get placed on college campuses and these students can end up becoming available for the team as well. You know, these were the sorts of things that those Oklahoma teams benefited for in Bud Wilkinson's early days. It's it's what allowed some programs to remain really viable and big enough names during wartime. And it was something that a lot of the you know, bigger schools got to enjoy. And that's why in some ways they still enjoy that systemic advantage. You know, I, I think the big thing, the big takeaway here is that there are a lot of really good coaches throughout history. And I think the fact is, as part of the fun of it is throwing in some of these modern coaches and seeing where they fit into that mix. And if we're looking at modern coaches, you really hit it on the head in terms of the two who, in some way stack up and that would definitely be Meyer and it would definitely be Saban. Um, especially for the fact that they've been able to pull it off at multiple schools, which is a rarity even among the best of the best.
Right. That's exact. And I mean, it's only fair, like I said earlier, to compare based on how they did in that era, because who knows how Nick Saban would have fared during Newt Rockney's days. Who knows how Newt Rockney would fare in today's college football landscape. It's impossible to know. It's impossible to make that kind of comparison. Another guy in the modern era who's quickly rising up the boards, by the way, is Dabo Sweeney. Yeah. You got a guy who's, you know, won two of the last three national championships and is just now starting to recruit at a Saban or Meyer-like level. Like Clemson's always recruited well under Sweeney, but haven't brought in number one class after number one class or anything. And they've got a monster 2020 class working right now that could really change things. And you've got, they're obviously one of the top two favorites to win the title again this season with Trevor Lawrence at quarterback. So, I mean, he's another guy who, if we revisited this topic a decade from now, could really, really, really rise up the ranks, whether he stays at Clemson or whether he moves on to Alabama or somewhere like that down the line. Well, yeah, and I, I think this would be fun to revisit a decade down the road because if you're going to look at guys who are up-and-comers who might also take that mantle, imagine what might happen if Scott Frost actually follows in the footsteps of Bob Devaney and Tom Osborne and actually brings another national title to Lincoln. You know, on the footsteps of what he did do at UCF, um, you know, that was the big boost for somebody like Urban Meyer when we talk about his Utah days and elevating the first BCS buster of that era. Um, you know, Scott Frost had the, the virtual equivalent in the college football playoff era with those Knights teams. And if he were to actually elevate the Cornhuskers to a national title or, you know, even a couple of them, it, it, he'd be hard-pressed to be considered out of that that run down the road as well. Yeah, and if an o, if Lincoln Riley produces a Heisman Trophy winner every year for the next decade, oh, like he's starting his career doing, it's going to be hard to ignore his impact as well. Exactly. He could win no titles, but if you're producing the best player in the sport every year, you're obviously doing something incredible as a coach. So. <laughs> right. And eventually you got to figure that would lead to a title or two as well, like just by having the best player every single year or so. Certainly. Well, everybody, thank you again. I hope this was fun for you all as it was for us to, to sort of look at the history of coaches. And, you know, obviously we nailed down who we would say are our top five, the ones that we would, you know, sculpt into the marble or sculpt into the mountainside a la Rushmore. Um, but at, as I mentioned earlier, any one of these dozen or more coaches that we've already talked about here would all be great names to put up there. And there are certainly coaches that we missed along the way in this discussion that you could certainly shout out at us on Twitter and let us know how wrong we were. Um, but on that note, I think we, we've hit this well, and we both mentioned who we would carve. So um, we're going to cut this week. We've had a couple of long segments here for you. So we're not going to hit you with a third segment this week. Just enjoy the summertime. Uh, John, always a pleasure. Great to get to talk with you again, as it always is. Absolutely. It's a blast every week. I was glad to be back with you. Uh, excited to keep going. Yep. And uh, next week, everybody, we will be starting to dive into our conference previews with a look at some of the smaller schools, um, specifically the F FCS 
as we talked about in our first segment today, as well as uh, some specific schools at that level in the historic black colleges and universities. So stay tuned for that. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend of the weekend, and we'll talk to you next Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in.